your education utopia look like? What changes would you make to the way we educate our future leaders? The Fresh Forward podcast is here to inspire ambitious educators like you to have fun, dare to experiment, and shake up adult education. Every two weeks, you'll hear from brave teachers who decided to do things differently, plus my tips on how to put the lessons they've learned into practice. I'm your host, Nija Krik, a learning experience designer and a relentless optimist on a decade-long journey in education innovation. Now, let's make your education utopia a reality, shall we? My guest today is Chitra Natrajan, originally from southern India and now living in the Netherlands with her partner Anand and their daughter Dwani. She's an HR professional turned birth educator, a certified hypnotherapist, a businesswoman, and a podcaster of the Baby Ahoy podcast, where she talks about women's health, birthing stories, human rights, and babies. When she doesn't do that, you will find her singing in a women's choir, drinking loads of chai, taking long walks in the woods, or diving into interior design. Or maybe she'll be lifting weights. Chitra, welcome to the podcast. It's an honor. We've met each other about six years ago. Yeah. And really, facilitation brought us together in a way. Yes. Yes, absolutely. However, then I became your client first when I was pregnant with our first. Yes. And I know from experience that if I hadn't gone through your education, your course, your guidance, I would have had a very different birthing experience with my first and then with my second pregnancy and twins. Right. And I'm so grateful for that, for that knowledge, for that gift that you gave me through your practice. And that's also the reason why I really wanted to have you here on this podcast. It is about education, but for me, it's so much more. It's also about what are we learning and what are we, what do we need to unlearn Yeah. as humanity? What have we forgotten as these, you know, fundamental knowings of our body, of our wisdom, of our society and all of that community? Yeah. Yeah. So that's the conversation I would like to have with you about about it. But let's first go to the start. We live both living in, in the Netherlands, but yeah. you are from originally from southern India. Yeah. And I know that you started as an <laughs> HR professional. Yes. Yes. How how on earth do you go from being an HR professional yeah. to being a birth educator? <laughs> I mean, tell me. Yeah, to just to sort of, you know, to give a background. Yes, I do have a background in corporate human resources. And I was working in the corporate field and doing my compensation and benefits. And I was doing performance appraisal, employee engagement, connecting with people. People is some, you know, people as the space, as connections. It gives me a lot of energy. So that's something that I've always sort of like held on to. I have a background in sciences and I actually wanted to become a dentist. So I took pure science to study dentistry but of course I didn't and my sort of my path sort of took me elsewhere so I did my graduation in sciences and then I decided that you know doing research under the microscope was not my thing <laughs> so I decided that you know I would diversify and then I got into human resources so I did my master's in human resources and I got into being a recruiter you know you all have to slave at some point so you start off as a recruiter and then I sort of grew in my corporate career that way but what changes happened was we were in Africa while we were working and Anand and I, we wanted to have a child. And then, you know, we wanted to move back to India at that point in time because of every single country that you live in has its own 
hospital system, birthing system. And I was not very happy with the kind of access to the hospitals that we were having there. So when we were thinking about having a baby and we said, well, this is what it is. And we were also really young. We had lived in Africa for a while at the time, almost three and a half years. So we moved back to India. And I again picked up a job in a, in a corporate IT company and I was working in HR when we fell pregnant and I decided to actually stay back in India because, you know, I wanted to have the family support to be able to navigate the whole process and also the familiarity in the sense saying that, okay, you know, we would be in India, everything would be fine. And there was also an opportunity as soon as we moved to India, Anand's company wanted us to move to the US and I freaked out immediately saying that, oh my God, we've just moved from Africa to India and from here all the way to the US. And I said, no, no, no. I definitely want to have that kind of support system and I think I know the system in India and I'll be able to work. I had a very good birthing experience. I had an OBGYN and I had a good birthing experience only later to realize that that was not a norm. That was an exception because I had a very healthy pregnancy and my OBGYN was also extremely positive towards, you know, you're young, you're healthy. How bad can it be? Everything will be fine. Just follow your gut feeling. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was also more, she was not, she was guiding me in a very gentle way. She was not, you know, telling me what I'm, you know, what, um, what are the wrong things that can happen, the other things that can go wrong, you know. So she was not sort of like pushing me into anything else. But there was one thing that she basically mentioned, which I also didn't question the authority, where she said that, you know, we'll wait till 40 weeks. And if you don't go into labor, we will induce you. And I didn't think too much about it. I was preparing myself because I was still working, but I was also preparing myself with Ina Megaskin's book. I was doing yoga and I was doing a generic childbirth education course. I was trying to read, but at the same time, I was also sort of falling into the category of, yeah, maybe she knows best because she seems to be letting me be. So she knows best and we'll see what happened. Luckily, I went into labor at 39 weeks and four days. And I always wonder how it would have been if I hadn't gone into labor by 40 weeks, she would have definitely induced me. And I think my birthing experience would have been a completely different birthing experience to what I had with Juanita. So I think I was lucky. And I later got to know that there were a lot of things that happened in my birth could have been different as well. Yeah. You know, but overall, I had a very good birthing experience. And then we moved to the US when Dwani was three months old. And I was raising her and I had a few of my other friends who fell pregnant. And they were like, oh, you had a great experience. So tell me, what did you do? And I sort of gave them tips and tricks and the books that I read, the things that I did, blah, blah, blah. And the constant feedback that I got, I had about three friends at that point in time who were pregnant. And the feedback was, you're amazing. You're really good at what you do, what you say. And these resources are amazing. So why aren't you looking into doing what you're supposed to do? So what had happened was we'd moved to the US and I was um, waiting for my EAD to come through my work permit so that I could start work there. Again, in HR, I was not even thinking about doing any of this. The paperwork, it was taking some time and they were processing my paperwork. When Anand comes home and he tells me, well, we have to move to the Netherlands. I was like, what? <laughs> Why are you making me do this? We just moved halfway around the world and then you're wanting me to go to the Netherlands. It was a fantastic opportunity for us to say no. And the pros and cons of, you know, either we do three flights and go to India, travel 23 hours, or we do two flights from here, which is about 13 hours. And I was like, that sounds good. Okay, why don't we go to the Netherlands and be there for a year or two? That's what Anand promised me. He said, a year or two, we'll explore 
If you don't like it, we move back to the US. Oh, those years. <laughs> I came here for a year. I've been here for 10 years. I know I'm what you're telling you. We came here for a year, 15 years. Nisha, this place grows on you. It just doesn't, you know, let you move because everything sort of works really well to a point where when you find your tribe and when you find your space, you feel comfortable about staying here. And I think that's the beauty of living in the Netherlands. But anyway, but I, w- I was also really apprehensive in the beginning because, you know, like trying to learn Dutch and trying to... What happened was I interviewed with the same company as my husband and I had a job offer with them. So to join their company in uh, based out of Amsterdam South. So I moved here thinking that it'll, everything would be great. This is 2007. Did you slip back into HR world? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, that's exactly what it was. It was always about getting back to HR, getting back to my corporate roots. That's what I'd like to do. And then I moved here only to realize that there was a 48 months waiting time for putting Dwani in a daycare. 48 months. This was before the 2008 crash. So none of the daycare, we used to live in Utrecht at the time, none of the daycare, no cast outers, no daycare. I mean, I would literally call people and I would beg. And I'm also talking about 15 years ago where people were not extremely friendly when it comes to somebody speaking to you in English. You know, that was not heard of. And there was not much of, you know, expats around. So it was... Was that such of a difference then? Yeah, there was a huge difference then. Oh, Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, You you sort of felt like people would talk, but it was an effort. It was more like, but why are you making me talk? You're in my country. You should be speaking the language. But I would be like, I've just arrived. And they're like, but why are you here? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you're an English speaker you're about in London like why are you here like everybody was just curious about why we were here so I couldn't actually it was literally like hitting a, a wall I would yeah. call people and it was just and then the company the offer that I had that was not going to last for a very long time I had to say either a yes or a no they were really wanting somebody to actually take over their training corporate training sort of a role for Benelux and I don't know what I was thinking, Neja. I thought I would put Dwani in a daycare, I would work full time. Um, you know, once in three months, I was expected either to be in Brussels, Luxembourg or London. I said yes to everything. You know, sometimes you just, you're young <laughs> and you sort of think like all of this is possible. How can it not be possible? Yeah. Um, we'll it later. Exactly. We'll do it. We'll figure it out. Yeah. And nothing, nothing fell in place. Nothing. So I was really, really upset about it. And I, you know, there's that sudden crisis in identity that came into existence to a point where, okay, I'm a mother. I really enjoy the role, but I'm also this person and I'd really like to have my identity back. And then there was a little bit of resentment as well with Anand saying that, you know, but you made me move here. And, you know, he said, well, you did have a job offer, but what we didn't know was how difficult it would be to get into a daycare you know we yeah. just completely miscalculated and i'm also talking about the time where there was no social media no connections whatsoever you had to do your own research it meant that you know we had to come here so i was also a bit bitter with the company that gave me the offer not warning us about any of this just saying oh everything will be fine but i was like no it's not fine <laughs> but nobody told me that so there was a lot of this that was going on what then clicked? How did you then make the move towards birth education? So, so what happened was, you know, that was also the time where Anand's father passed away all of a sudden. And then my dad passed away all of a sudden within a span of eight months in between. So it meant that, you know, I had to basically be shuttling between India and the Netherlands at that point in time. With a baby. Always, with the baby, right? And I sort of, I've always had this this thing with me. What I do has to be enjoyable. And that's something that I need to connect and be happy about. Yeah. And when with the things that I was going through at that point in time, there was a lot of turmoil, you know, in the household. 
he lost his dad and he was trying to process it i lost my dad i was trying to process it in the meanwhile we were trying to make sure that the respective mothers were taken care of and i just said what was i thinking about going back to the corporate world that was just not going to work so i had two options one was i really like the birthing world i really like what is happening in terms of the dutch maternity care i understood how the dutch maternity care would work that was also because of my next door neighbor at utrecht who was fully pregnant and she said oh i'm definitely going to go to the hospital to give birth but she ended up giving birth at home i could hear the baby cry and i was elbowing on in the middle of the night saying that i think she's given birth i think maria has given birth you know so i was so in awe of what had happened and of course the next morning they had to move to the hospital to make sure the baby had to be checked and things like that but it was a home birth and for me that sort of like opened my eyes into possibilities of why can't i explore this i'm going to explore this i'm going to give this some time because i didn't have i was still interviewing with a lot of other companies here but at the same time i was like let me look into what is going on here in terms of the dutch maternity care and then i wanted to do a certification as a birth professional so i went to the us i went to los angeles to actually work with a mentor with lamas international i did my training and then i said i'm going to give it a try if it doesn't work i'm going to find a way where dwani over you know i think she was already almost turning 4 i'll put it in at school and i'll probably go back to the corporate world i'll probably do interviews and i'll probably learn the language i've already started learning the language by then i said i'm going to do that but i'm going to give this a go because this is something that i really feel passionate about what was the curiosity that really i think for me because i had a fantastic birthing experience and i was trying to connect the dots from um i remember talking to my grandmother where she had given birth at home to where my mother gave birth to me in the hospital where i gave birth to my daughter in the hospital so i was seeing that disconnect from what happened how did the transition from home to hospital birth has happened whereas in the western world in a country like the netherlands how is it that it's still a, a long standing tradition of giving birth at home yeah that was the curiosity i was like but how is that even possible why is it that we think that it's a risk whereas the dutch women think that it's absolutely okay to give birth here why is it that you go to a midwife whereas we think that is important that we go to an obgyn so i wanted to sort of get into that feel and understand the cultural aspects of why mothers feel comfortable about doing that and that's how my whole passion for exploring the birthing world came into existence i think it was just curiosity it's like but how is it possible but why did you do this and in 2010 you started your own business your practice akriti if i were to challenge you to this still the purpose of your company because you are a one woman band which means that i'm assuming that the purpose of your company is very related to your own purpose as a person could you tell a bit more about that purpose that drives you losing my dad and losing anand's dad because anand's dad was my best friend so quickly so all of a sudden changed my attitude towards life yeah right i no longer wanted to work for someone else i've always had this entrepreneurial streak in me nature because my dad was an entrepreneur and i've had multiple conversations with him where you know he's told me that you know you're like me i think you should get into doing some sort of a business you need to get into something that would make make you feel comfortable rather than working for someone else but then i also really like the the discipline that came with the corporate world because there are certain processes that you need to follow there are certain things and you're also learning and growing there are a lot of other training opportunities you know you're also learning on the job you're also learning with other certifications and it sort of helps you reorient yourself and help you grow as a person and what you contribute to the corporate world so i really like that 
Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I always sort of like thought about what my dad used to tell me, saying that like he was an entrepreneur. What did he do? Why did he not explore? Because when I was a child, when me and my when my brother was really young, I think he was six, seven or eight months old, my dad had an opportunity to move to Germany to work for Grundig TV. He was an engineer. He was an electronics engineer. And he explored the possibilities, but then he also said, no, he was not going to do it because with two small children and they were not going to give my dad the family visa so that my mom and we could move. So he said he was not going to do that. And he also at that point in time said that I'm not going to be working for someone else and I'd like to work for myself. And I think it was that as a purpose saying that, why don't I explore this? And I also wanted to have a career in a suitcase sort of a thing. If tomorrow Anand said that we have to go to Sweden, I should be in a position to pack my bags, go there and establish myself. So I had thought about that, saying that in the world of birth, there will be birth all the time. But it was also about not achieving or making money. That was not the point. The point was, how can I give something back to the community? How can I work with women? How can I make sure that they understand that physiologically that all of this is a is a possibility why is that combination of independence women understanding that there's a different way why is that so important to you because women's health women's rights are never spoken for right i didn't know a lot of things when i was pregnant nobody told me and and again, nobody should even tell you. I feel like everybody should do your own research. You know, I think everybody has to do their own research to come and oh, find out. I learned it through. I learned it through you, right? Yeah, exactly. Of this information, yeah. it was extremely important for me to feel safe in the environment where I was being pregnant. Exactly. So what I wanted to do was nobody told me, but I also it it was also not that I went out seeking for that information as well. I had there was a system, there was an institution. And I was going to follow the institution. I was also, you know, I had that mentality of, I think they know what they're doing, but Mm -hmm. I would do my own research, but I will try and find a balance. I was not going to question the system. So for me, even as much as I was doing my childbirth education and everything, when I was pregnant, there were a lot of things that were told that I didn't question, saying that, oh, you would be given an episiotomy, for example. And that's much better rather than having a tear. I was like, oh, is that so? Sure. Right. Rather than thinking, why, why does it have to be that way? So for me, I wanted to question those status quo. I wanted to make sure that people understand that there is a different way because episiotomies were not a routine procedure when my grandmother was giving birth. That didn't happen at home birth. So I wanted to sort of understand this advancement in medical technology and an advancement in what we know in terms of, you know, how science can help us because we have enough data and research. At the same time, I wanted to talk to women about their own rights. I think that's very important. For me, I felt so much more empowered when I started reading up and when I started understanding the whole physiology of labor and the science, the science behind it was fascinating. So I was like, how can I actually bring the science and work with people to empower them to make sure that they have a good experience? So that was what made me propel me into 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 the birthing world. Yeah. Yeah, and especially having a good experience in such a crucial moment of a woman's life, right? Precisely. It determines so many things. It's major. Exactly. And also, Neja, the unfortunate thing was with all my friends in India at that point in time, most of them have had a C-section, right? And they were all very young, very young, really healthy, but C-section births. And 
And there was a little bit of that apathy in the system where it would be like, but this is how it will be. It will be too painful. You will have a C-section. It's easy for you to recover from a C-section, right? They'll give you pain medication or don't worry about this. So there was constant conversations around C-sections. There was no conversations around, but what happens with vaginal birth? Yeah. Right? To look back, and I've sort of, you know, had have, I have enough time and experience now to reflect back on what, what was happening. But I was just like, but we're young. Why should we have a huge surgery? Honestly, I was also prepared for that. No? In the sense saying that, yeah, if there is an emergency, if you have to give me a C-section, I'm absolutely fine with it. But thank God. <laughs> the experience that I had. Yeah, exactly. It went so well. Yeah. So I was an exception. So for me, I couldn't come to terms with the fact that how can I be an exception? So does it mean that only three or 4% of that population would have this kind of an experience, but most of the others, because we are all coming from an affluent family. We have enough money to be able to spend for healthcare. Why is it that we are being given routine C-sections, whereas a mother who comes from below poverty line probably needs a C-section, probably needs a blood transfusion, but she doesn't have an opportunity to do that because she's poor, mm-hmm. right? For me, that was the curiosity. So now you've had your practice for what, 12 years? 12 years. Yeah. years? Wow. 12 years now. Yeah. And I am sure you learned so much. So now I'm going to probe into those learnings, okay? Please do. Please do. What you do is you offer a course in hypnobirthing. Yes. Can you shortly, shortly explain what is hypnobirthing? Sure. And what is this course about? Yes, absolutely. So hypnobirthing, I trained with Marie Mongan. That's the Mongan method where she was a hypnotherapist and she wanted to actually bring in hypnotherapy tools into the birthing world for her daughter when she wanted to actually give birth to her grandson. So the idea is that how do mothers cope when you're in labor? We've been asked to lie down. We're attached to machines. We're asked not to eat or drink. Lying down is the worst thing that you can actually do to yourself when you are in labor. Freedom of movement is very important. If you think about any animal, you can't ask an animal to lie down. What do they do, whether it's a domesticated animal like a cow or, you know, an animal in the wild, they walk and they move around. We as mammalian creatures, as human beings, we also need to walk and move around. So the fundamental concept of lying down in bed and being monitored needs to be taken away from the laboring room and try and be as flexible and as movable as possible. Freedom of movement is very important. That's number one. And with hypnosis, as much as we talk about hypnosis, people always sort of think that it's something this out-of-body experience, it's absolutely not. It's like being in a state of trance or a meditative state or a sleep-like state where you're open to suggestions, which you're normally not in the normal waking level. When we are talking like this now, Nesha, you and I, I mean, you've had experience with hypnosis. We're very logical because we want to put best of ourselves in front of you. We want to feel pronounced and present. There are different cultural messages that goes on when we talk to each other, when we're very logical. But when we are not logical, so it means the left side of the brain sort of like suppresses and the right side of the brain, the right part of the brain sort of takes over, which is the most creative, the most emotional part of you, when that would happen when you're in that sleep-like state. That's why we end up having nightmares or we end up having dreams or abstract thought process, that imprinting that happens over a period of time. So we explored conditioning of the mind over a period of time. So when you listen to positive affirmations or when you talk about birth in a positive way, you reaffirm yourself with certain thought process over and over again, over a period of time, that sort of helps you 
feel comfortable and safe in the space that you feel okay with. So when you're in labor. So that's why we teach you tools from breathing techniques to hypnosis and relaxation to visualization because visualizations are very, very powerful as guided imagery, deepening techniques. So these different techniques will sort of help you cope when the going gets tough. As much as there's freedom of movement, and I also think that mother should not be giving birth in isolation. She needs some sort of a help and support. So having a birth companion with the mother, or maybe even having someone else, like a doula, like a professional support person, or it could be your best friend, your your sister, who's like super positive about, you know, labor and birth, who can actually hang out with you and tell you everything is okay. And having the support of the midwife, because the role of the midwife is also to facilitate labor and birth. So it's sort of like this hands-free approach to, what the mother is going through is intuitive. Let's not go and disturb the mother constantly. Mm. So all of this in terms of low-risk pregnancy. And if you fall under high-risk pregnancy, we could sort of simulate a similar kind of experience in the hospital as well. Yeah. So a lot of the times people think hypnobirthing is just about giving birth at home or giving birth in the birthing center, but it doesn't have to be that way. If it is a normal physiological labor where everything goes on really well and the birth unfolds the way it is supposed to unfold, you don't need hypnobirthing tools. You can give birth without. But I think the tools will come handy when things become, when the going gets tough, when you have to make some of those decisions, because we are never in a position to say, this is exactly how your birth will unfold. Every single birthing experience is so unique that you have to be prepared for different eventualities. So that's why... I always say this, there's nothing called as a perfect birth. For me, it was fascinating to know how this perception of there needs to be pain came about when men took over as medical profession yes. professionals yeah. and birthing all of a sudden became almost a disease-like. Yeah, it, it, it started being treated like an illness. You know? Illness, yeah. Of going, as an illness, yeah. yeah. Instead of getting going through birthing experience in a community of women who know what's happening and support you. In my case, it was extremely important to be able to understand this process for me and here to really become birthing partners. Yes. What is the biggest challenge that your clients need to overcome in order to have a beautiful, calming, full of ownership birthing experience? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I want to tell you. I think your birthing experience was fantastic, you know, with the first one, with what had happened and and how you sort of navigated the whole thing and you and Kate and then, you know, the both of you were really in that together and how you had conversations with the hospital. It was a hospital birth, but you had a beautiful birth. I also want to clarify that we don't promise pain-free birth. So pain-free birth is something that, you know, we don't promise. And see, that is, it's a different kind of discomfort that you go through. Every single mother goes through that. And the threshold for all of us is very different. So when we go through something so intense and that discomfort that we feel is just like unbearable or unmanageable, that's when the tools that needs to sort of kick in at that point in time. Most of the time, it's your breathing techniques. I always say this, your breath is the anchor from within. If we don't make use of our breathing techniques, our breath, it's like you're basically resisting what your body is asking you to do. What is the challenge there that the, the women and men that are accompanying their, their pregnant wives or, yeah. or partners, yeah. what is the challenge that they need to overcome in order to get that relaxed state? Yeah, I think it's important for them to work with each other and not panic and not be anxious about it. Because some births where the mother goes into labor and then it's an intense birth experience is what we call as a rapid labor or presuptuous labor. 
where the mother gives birth in say four, four and a half, five or six hours time. And, you know, that could be one thing. Or in some situations, it birth sort of like it takes a very long time. It builds up over a period of time. Having to trust your body is key. That's number one, right? Rather than, you know, wondering, oh my God, something is going on with me and I don't like that experience. You might not like it, but when you make use of those tools, you sort of overcome that feeling of resistance. It's like this. You have to dive, you know, you're probably going to do deep sea diving. You're really scared. What happens at that point in time? Your your body, your uh, metabolic process, your adrenaline sort of takes over at that point in time because it's warning you to say that, you know, what you're going to do is really stupid. I, I hope you know what you're going to do is stupid. <laughs> but I am here as part of your body and I'm telling you that it's stupid, but I'll definitely help and try and save and support you. So all your muscles sort of becomes really strong. Your heart palpitation increases. You have that ecstatic sensation, the overwhelming sensation to dive. But at the same time, you're also telling yourself, I'm being stupid. I don't know what to do anymore. Somebody has to push me so that I can dive. You want to have that accelerating experience. But at the same time, you also have that fear. So it's the constant push and pull that you would actually feel. But we need to understand that as soon as you dive, you need to make use of your breath. When you dive, you need to breathe. And the breath that you would have, maybe you would have your oxygen cylinders. And, you know, the, the person who is actually diving with you will help you to breathe, would have already taught you how to breathe. And once your heart rate slows down and comes back to normalcy, you'll be able to enjoy what's happening under the water. And it's the same thing, whether you're bungee jumping, whether you're, you know, paragliding or, you know, or if you're running, if you're sprinting, that's an experience. But when you have to run a marathon, you have to regulate your heartbeat. And for that, you need to have your breath. Why do you think it's so difficult for people to trust their bodies nowadays? I think most of it is because, Nisha, we've been constantly told what we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Right? If you think about our grandmothers, you know, as soon as you would sneeze, they would quickly make some sort of a concoction and say, oh, drink this, you'll be fine. Again, Or they'll just say, don't worry about it. Why don't you lie down for a couple of days and you'll be fine. You know, your body needs to heal. You've picked up something, your body needs to heal and recover. Listen to your body. But we're also in time and space where we run all the time. Our body might be giving us some of these cues, and but we don't listen to the cues because, hey, we live in a world where we're expected to run every day, right? Whether it is running for work or whether it is training for something or whether it is being present because you already have committed to a certain work, you have to be there. You have to show up. You don't really have much of a choice. So we sort of suppress those feelings, whether it is having a pain in the shoulder or whether you're having pain in your low back. It could be any of that. But we try and sort of push it away and we try and push ourselves to the max. Why? Because we as a culture, as a society, We don't want to take some time off when our body wants to heal or when our body wants to slow down, right? So when there is that disconnect, there'll be more of that disconnect when you're pregnant. So it really is about, and again, I'm not saying that we can do all of this without modern medicine. Absolutely not. We need modern medicine because we are in a position to do what we're supposed to do for low-risk pregnancy and for home births or birthing center births with the midwives is because we have a clear understanding with the OBGYN umbrella, if there is an emergency, they can jump in and help. But not all pregnancies end up being an emergency birth. Yeah. Most of the time, it unfolds as a normal physiological labor. 
So the most important thing is for us to understand what goes on in our body and to sort of, you know, stay with it, stay at it rather than run a mile, you know, thinking about, but am I going to give birth in the next six hours? Or am I going to give birth in the next 66 hours? What's going to happen? Why am I feeling this? When you constantly question what is going on, you're probably resisting it. Yeah. Whereas when you acknowledge what is going on and when you start embracing it by breathing, by moving, by eating and drinking, by asking your partner to give you a massage, by showering, by sitting on a ball, it just sort of helps you cope with what's yeah. going on. I'm curious, what was the thing or what were the skills or the mindsets or the skill sets that you needed to step into either completely or more or from scratch or learn, you know, or unlearn in order to be able to do the work you do? I had to go through a lot of unlearning, Nisha. Hmm. Why? Because it's also the, the cultural conditioning of the top-down approach. We were being told. My OBGYN told me that I need to lie completely flat on my back with my legs on a stirrup to give birth. My OBGYN told me that I needed to have an episiotomy to give birth. I did not question any of that. But when I was lying down to give birth to my daughter, I did tell her that, but this feels so uncomfortable. Because until that point, I was moving. Right? This feels so uncomfortable. Why are you making me lie down? And then I remember Anand holding my hand saying that, but she wants to check you. So maybe it's okay. So we were basically subservient to what they were saying. So for me, it was more about understanding why we've been subjected to that. And also say that, gosh, that's not how it should be. It should be something else. Because at that point in time, if she would have told me, You don't have to lie down, Chitra. You be in a position that feels comfortable for you. Maybe I'd have been in an upright position. You know what I really wanted to do was to sit in the toilet. Yeah. Right? But she didn't let me. It feels so uncomfortable when you're lying down. She said, it's almost there. It's going to be fine. And my whole experience was so beautiful until that point where they did the episiotomy. It was, there was no consent. There was, it was more about, we're going to do an episiotomy. And then she cut rather than asking me for consent. So those little things was, you know, put together when I was reflecting. I was like, but this could have been different as much as it was a great birthing experience, but I didn't have this information for me. You to didn't have agency better. as no. much as you wanted to. As much so as what else did you need to unlearn or relearn in order to be able to do this work with, with women? I had one is unlearning a lot of this in terms of, you know, how the hierarchical structure would work. That's number one. And trying to understand that as much as we are uninstitutionalizing birth and you're working with somebody as, you know, a midwife or clinical midwife or an OBGYN in the hospital, it's also about negotiating and working with each other. So I wanted to sort of go to the point of collaboration rather than resistance and being aggressive. Yeah. Right. We need to give parents the tools to be able to work with the hospital staff rather than be aggravated or be aggressive about it. It's important as a collaborative work. I'm so happy that you're saying this because while I'm listening to you, I'm seeing so many parallels to how I would like to see or what I would like to see more of in the current education system, right? Yeah. That the teacher and the student are actually collaborating partners and it's not about top down but it's about saying what will serve you right now how will you be how will you be your own self in that very moment so that you can learn the best or in your case 
that they they can or that we as women are are about get to give birth how can we be relaxed versions of ourselves because exactly. then that's when the learning happens it's like this right when you start collaborating you start trusting yourself you start trusting the other person yeah. when there is trust everything in the room relaxes why because everybody has one goal in your case if you're talking about a you know teacher and a student the goal of the student is to learn the goal of the teacher is to make sure that the student learns so there's only one goal and it's the same thing my goal is to make sure that the parents feel comfortable enough and safe enough to trust their body and confident enough to be able to have the kind of birth that they want having an understanding that the room that they are in the people that they are with are trustworthy so that trust needs to happen so that you can collaborate if you're going to constantly look at the other person and say i don't trust you that's not going to work the whole chemistry and the dynamics in the room will change when everybody is relaxed whereas if a midwife is going to walk in or an obgyn is going to walk in and if that person is going to be an authoritative figure the mother is not going to you know want to work with that person oh. so that's why it's really important for us to work in a very collaborative way rather than have that resistance and you know wanting to fight it's interesting you you made mentioned authority i believe that authority you know in slovenian we have two words that i want to mention one is respect and then is the respect out of fear strahu spoštovanje in spoštovanje and many times when i'm listening to experience of students the way we are taught to be teachers is that yeah. i am the one who needs to know everything and therefore that that is the source of my authority or of my, of where you should be respecting me from it's like weird yes. way of saying it yes however i do believe that you have much better results when you become collaborators as you mentioned mm? yeah when you really build this trust of i'm not going to impose my views on you but i will offer them to you exactly. and then i will challenge you to actually find your own truth in this. absolutely absolutely so that's challenging right because it's we are challenging very different it's very different say i remember you know studying in schools where i would always look at my teachers with the fear because their teachers you know i also come from a system of it's called mata pita guru devam which means your mother your father your teacher and then the god right so your teacher and you don't even exist in that constellation no you don't exist in the constellation right we are nowhere there but i think it's important for us to understand that we need to have students as respective part of the constellation because that's the person who's actually learning i'm telling you neja I have a huge fear with numbers mathematics you know why because i have had such horrible mathematics teachers who've constantly told me that the way i think and the way i do my numbers is absurd so i always have this fear of numbers so that's why i even picked sciences as pure science so that i could get into medicine or dentistry rather than thinking about going into the field of engineering or research whereas in the end when i did my masters i did financial management i did accounting i had to learn everything in terms of i did probabilities i did statistics i had to learn everything from scratch but i was able to do it because yeah. i had a good teacher yeah right it changes everything if i'm going to come in as a birth educator to say that only normal vaginal home birth is the best way to give birth and all the other births are useless i'm not doing justice to what i'm supposed to do i'm sorry that's not who i should be I shouldn't be in the in the business of birthing at all. I need to be in a position to come and say 
different births would happen, different eventualities are possibilities, and I want you to be prepared for different eventualities. In normal circumstances, this is what would happen, and you can have the birth that you want. Whereas if birth becomes medical, if you opt for a pain medication, if it ends up being a C-section birth, I want you to be prepared for different eventualities so that you have the birth that you want, so that you look back at your birthing experience as a positive one, and you don't have any trauma about it. So my role as an educator is to make sure that there is no trauma yeah. than having, you know, the perfect birth because perfect birth doesn't exist. If you look at the education system today, with all the knowledge that you have, the women and men that come into your practice and you see what they need to unlearn in order to have a birthing experience that serves them. If you had a magic wand and you could change the education system, what is the vision that you have for the future of education system? Oh my gosh, yeah. I wish I had a magic wand, but what would I do with it? <laughs> <laughs> if you, you can change one thing to make it easier. One thing. I think trusting yourself. See, there's that strong intuitive feeling that you would have about something, right? So when, when you're clear about what you want, then it means that you will go out and seek what you want. So I think... When we trust what we want, most of the times people are confused about what they want. So when there is that little bit of clarity about what you want, then you go outside to the outside world and then you start seeking what you want as answers. I think that's what it is. When people sign up for a hypnobirthing course or when people sign up for even my other generic childbirth education, they are seeking something and they've made that choice of like, okay, I really need to do this to make sure that I have uh, you know, what it takes to get the birth that I want, whatever serves my purpose. So they've made that leap, but that clarity needs to happen, right? But we can't force that clarity. So that has to come from within. Like, you know, I had one of my cousins really young. Um, she had a fantastic pregnancy. Everything was really well. Everything was going really well. And I did offer to her saying that, you know, I can help you. We could talk about it. You don't have to do anything about it, but, you know, make sure that, you know, you're doing certain things and, you know, speak to your OBGYN. She was going to give birth in India. And at 37 weeks, they basically cornered her saying that something is wrong with the baby and you have to have a C-section. And without even consulting anybody, she did. And it took a while for her to recover from the C-section. And I was like, it was a bit disappointing, but it was also not my place to say anything at the time. Yeah. And later, once she had processed all of that, a couple of years later, she told me, maybe we should have changed the care provider. Maybe we should have gone somewhere else. So for some people, the clarity comes when they're pregnant. Whereas for some people, it comes after, after they've had an experience where they want to have a different sort of an experience after that experience, right? Yeah. So we can't force that clarity. That intuitiveness will have to come from within that gut feeling where you start listening to what is happening has to come from within for us to make those choices. And I think about it not only in the healthcare, whether it is the school that you go to or whether it is certain situations that we get into with relationships, friendships. It's all of that because it comes from within. You know that something is not okay, but you don't want to act on it because you feel like, well, how am I supposed to do this? Right. Yeah, there's then, clarity of what to do. You, exactly. It's almost like you make a decision of not making a decision. Not making a decision, exactly. And that clarity is usually right, you know, because something is happening and it's telling you that, well, oh, it doesn't feel right. Yeah. So I think, I think that's one thing that I would say that if you tap into your own inner wisdom, 
as much as I don't want to sound too over the top, I think we all have it. We oh, all we have that intuition. You know, I we all have it. Believe we do. Yeah. Yeah. And if we just listen to that one. Do you have an advice or do you have a tip for educators how they could help their students to trust more into that intuition that you're talking about? One is this, right? For students, if the students approaches an educator and says that, hey, this is something that I don't understand or I don't feel comfortable sitting with this as a concept, rather than telling them that they have to do this, Maybe we need to look at why that student is having that difficulty so that we can help the student a bit better. They don't have to be creme de la la creme, but they still need to have a basic understanding of what were they supposed to, because that's what institutionalized education comes in. There are certain structures and we need to sort of stick to the certain structures. And I completely understand that. Mm -hmm. But if a student is really struggling with something as a concept, I think we need to break it down to make them understand that it's not rocket science. This is what it is. But if you're really not in a position to make, you know, to understand how can I help you better as an educator? I think to really can, listen. Yeah, to, to really them. listen. To really listen. Yeah. When you listen to the student, as much the student may not understand the concept, but they will feel comfortable enough in approaching you to talk about it. So you're breaking that barrier of the top-down approach. Mm-hmm. You're making it more democratic. And I think that's beautiful. That's, that's what I would really like for all educators. It doesn't matter whether you're a, an educator like me or whether you're a, a lecturer in a, in a university or you're a teacher at a school. Yes, there are certain fr- you know framework that we need to stick to. But when we have conversations and when we really listen to the student, I think it changes everything. Beautiful. I think that's an amazing moment to wrap up our conversation. <laughs> Please tell our listeners what they can reach out to you for and where can they find you. And I'll put all the links in the description below. So that's not a problem. Thank you, Deja. They can find all my information about all the different kind of courses that I do. I teach in three different locations in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, Utrecht, and in Hilversum. All of this is available on my website. It's called www.akriti.nl. It's a Sanskrit word, so it is a bit hard, but I'm sure it's in the show notes so that, you know, people can actually have a look at it. They can also find me under the same name as Akriti Official on Instagram. They can find me on Facebook with the same name. I'm also a podcaster like you. So if you want to listen to different types of birthing stories from the Netherlands, right from home births to hospital births to an induction birth to vaginal birth after a C-section to your beautiful twin birth stories, all sorts of birth stories are available on Spotify, on Stitcher, on iTunes, and on Google Podcasts. It's also available on my website. So yeah, people can find me yeah, in all these different yeah. social media platforms. Awesome. That's so cool. I'm so thankful for, for you to really dive in with me into the stories and then really finding a way how to put this also in education, because I think there are so many parallels. I really enjoy our conversation. So thank you for actually capturing this on your podcast. I feel extremely honored to be part of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired to experiment and inject more of yourself into your classroom. One thing is certain. You can do whatever you set your mind and heart to. I dearly believe that. If you long for more inspiration and practical tips, 
sign up for the newsletter where I share exclusive content related to the podcast episodes. Jump to nejakrik.com newsletter and join a community of fun, ambitious educators like yourself. Till the next episode, have fun! Have fun!